Hallelujah. I'm going to give a quick review and some new stuff about John, the second chapter. Then I'm probably going to go to Psalm 139. John, the second chapter, I'm going to go through verse 8. And then Psalm 139. Again, this is going to be a quick review. I made mention of this the last time I brought up Psalm uh, John, the second chapter. It is the first miracle that Jesus does. And I've been uh, listening to a Tim Keller sermon on this. And I said that I'd listened to it many, many times. First time I wasn't so impressed with it. It was all right. But the next time I listened to it, I got a whole lot more impressed. And with each listening, I've gotten more impressed. I mean, it made a tremendous impression on me personally. Since that time that I shared the last time, I've listened to it probably 10 more times. And it's still the same. I keep I prayed the last time if I if God would just permit me to reveal or share to you what I was getting. And then I prayed that. I continue to pray that. Father, let them let use me, please, to reveal what I saw and was blessed with. I prayed that the last time, but then after I listened to the to the sermon again, I was like, I didn't do it. <laughs> uh, maybe the Lord got through, but it wasn't what I was getting. And I don't know if I can uh, in one or two times, but I've gotten more and more and more. And I think I just want to encourage you, you know, it's, it's not the only tapes and sermons I listen to. I listen to quite a few during the week. Uh, Ravi Zacharias is one that I really, really like a lot. And, uh, and I listen to Tim Keller's and many others for that matter. And so uh, we're going to look at this quickly. And, and I just want to point out that um, Tim Keller makes reference to a book that he read about this, a whole book written on John, the second chapter, and the miracle that takes place in the beginning. And he points out that if you were going to write a biography about the most influential and greatest man that has ever walked the face of the earth, Jesus Christ, just from the point of view of an intellectual perspective, not so much as we believe, not that they don't, the book writer didn't believe it, but not from the perspective that he is fully God and fully man. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that is the belief of Christian Christianity. Um, but this was more of perspective of 
a biography of the greatest man, the most influential man that has ever lived. And he points out that if he, if he was doing it himself, uh, if he was going on the campaign that Jesus was about to begin, and that also brings me up to another perspective. It's, uh, I've been, that was when I was talking about Matthew 21 and 22, uh, and, and so and further, the last days of his life, before his crucifixion, he was revealing a lot of what he came to do. I still believe that wholeheartedly. But in the beginning of his ministry, he reveals. You don't always see these things. The first time I read this, I didn't even come close to seeing it. I was a little annoyed at what he had chose to do on his first sermon, turn water into wine. It was, uh, it was like, Jesus, you could have picked a better miracle than that to begin your ministry. Well, the guy that wrote the book said, if we were doing it, we would never do it that. But there's something more at work here than just meets the eye. At least for me, uh, it did. So let's look at this very quickly. <clears throat> and he said unto them, no, 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 no. Verse one, please. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana and of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, meant other translations, all other translations, when they ran out of wine. Okay. Um, I think one of the problems I always had with this is I heard a sermon one time where the guy spent the entire time saying this wasn't alcoholic wine. There was no alcohol in this. And as a previous drinker, heavy drinker, I thought that it was ludicrous that they would be concerned about running out of grape juice. But when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? I, my first impression, and Tim Keller's first impression of this, was why I didn't want to start my ministry at this time. Uh, why, why have you bothered me with this? And then, of course, Later he recants and says, oh, all right, I'll do it. Not, not saying it, but that's the attitude. That's what I thought happened here. Only, you know, it's like Tim Keller says, you can't treat Jesus like from our perspective. This is the greatest man. This is, this is planned. This is part of the plan. And there's another reason that he is saying, woman, what have I to do with you? My uh, what have I to do? My hour has not yet come. That is a consistent, he refers to my hour consistently throughout the book of John. And it's always about moving up to the crucifixion. So something here that Jesus is being asked of reminds him of his crucifixion. And of course, one of the uh, possibilities here 
is probability is it reminds him of the crucifixion. Why? Because if you remember when he takes the Last Supper, he says about the wine, he says, what does he say? This is my blood. And frequently the wine is being turned to blood. Uh, And uh, it's reminding him that why the wedding is because he is about to die for a wedding to produce the wine for his wedding for his bride which is us we are his bride and so that is the reason why he says woman what have I to do my hour has not yet come she turns around and she goes on next verse and there no no the verse after that and this, excuse me let's go back to my hour has not yet come alright next verse next verse now okay his mother said unto his servants do whatever he says to do <laughs> she doesn't take that as a no you know uh, because she knows that this is from her in her heart she knows what he can do and uh, he says, do whatever he can do. Do whatever he says. That is one of the keys. The whole reason for this uh, miracle is it's going to be a parable in a sense. It's a metaphor. It's a symbolic. It's a symbol. It's a s- significant that, uh, that it's going to reveal his message throughout his life. And so it says, uh, do whatever he does. That is the first key to coming to Christ. Do whatever he says to do. It says, and there were six water parts, and this is one of the parts that it should be convincing that it is what, it, what I've been talking about. He says, there were six water pots of stone after the manner of purifying of the Jews. Other translations of the cleansing. They used to wash before going into the temple. And the reason for that, it was a cleansing. Didn't really cleanse them of their sin, but it was symbolic of it. They were washing to be cleansed of their sins. And so, six water pots containing two or three firkins apiece. It comes to over 150 gallons of water. He says, and Jesus says unto them, fill the water parts. One of the most significant thing about this, that our uh, journey with the Lord, the first step, not only the first step, but every day of our lives is we are empty. We are out. We are drained. We are finished without God. You, you know, I, I, I know that's the first step is, is to be humble and realize. You know, when, when uh, John says he must increase while I must decrease, he's, he's referring to first the ministry, his ministry, and he's also referring to uh, himself 
is he must increase. I must decrease before, and he must increase. Fill the water parts with water, and they fill them up to the brim. And he saith unto him, Draw out now and bear to the governor of the feast. The governor of the feast, that means the person that was in charge of all the celebration, the master of ceremony, the master of the feast. And if you understand it, it is his responsibility to produce and have on hand enough wine and food for the celebration. And in those days and traditions, the celebration could last for days. And he had run out. Now that's, uh, um, uh, here's one of the things that Jesus doesn't just perform a miracle to uh, alleviate or to solve, solve a person uh, mere social embarrassment. But the governor of the feast is, 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 is run out. And then he says, draw out, and he says, and they bear it, and to the governor of the feast. Next verse, please. And when the ruler of the feast, the governor of the feast, had tasted the water that was made wine, he knew not whence it was. He didn't know where it came from. But the servants which drew the water knew, the, the angels knew, See, these are, these are symbolic here. The governor of the feast, which called the bridegroom. Now you understand here that in many places in the Bible, God refers, Jesus refers to um, himself as the bridegroom. Well, even when John the Baptist was told, uh, people, we're losing followers and they're going after Jesus. And then he said, Shouldn't the children of the bridegroom, the bride of the bridegroom, go after the bridegroom? So John the Baptist calls him the bridegroom. When they come to Jesus and say, hey, how come your disciples don't fast? He says, can the children of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? So he refers to himself, and then Paul refers to him as our bridegroom, and we're the bride. You know, he says, for this cause shall a man... Be joined to his mother, but I speak a great mystery because I'm speaking about Christ in the church. So the Christ in the church, we're the bride, bride, and he's the bridegroom. And so he is also symbolically, because he is making the wine for the wedding, he is the governor of the feast. He is the one that produces the feast. You see, someday uh, we're going to go be with him. And uh, when we do, there's going to be a tremendous wedding, and there's going to be a feast. And it, and a lot of lot of theologians believe, and eschatologists believe, that uh, it's not going to last for seven days. It's going to last for seven years. We're going to be feasting because. But what does it have to? What does the governor of the feast and the bridegroom have to do? In order to do this, well, he's got a, the, the wine is going to be his blood. And it's going to be better than the last. And so it says the governor of the feast uh, said, this is the best. And why would he do that? You know, I, literally, the ones, uh, speakers that I've heard before would, would be upset. 
that he did this. Why did he do this? Well, because of what I just said before, it's it's because it's, it's all symbolism of what something so much bigger. This is what he's come to do. This is to shed his blood to make wine for a feast. And he is the feast maker. Being a Christian is not, uh, it's a feast. It's a happy time. We're having a, 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 a grand old time. This is part of the preparation of the greatest wedding that's ever going to take place. We're already dra- dressed for it. Dressed in robes of righteousness. You know, he turned our mourning into dancing. He has put off our sackcloth. He has girded us with gladness. He has dressed us with robes of righteousness. So the, so the next verse. And he said unto them, uh, the governor of the feast said unto him, Every man beginneth, uh, doth forth with good wine. And when they have well drunk, then that which is worse is kept. But you've saved the good wine until now. So if you, the first thing that happened was the, the wine was made in cleansing pots. If that's not an indication that there's a, a message here, look at this next verse. This beginning of miracles did Jesus of, uh, in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. You see, this was his glory. This is not just turning water into wine. Now, yes, it was in, in reality kind of an insignificant thing to do. You know, weddings were pretty important in those days and celebrations were important. But, you know, this isn't like healing a leper or making some lame man walk or healing of the blind eyes. This isn't, uh, you know, this is, this is small potatoes as far as man's perspective then 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 you know if we were writing the book if we were going to do it we would we'd pick a much much bigger miracle and he says this is the beginning of it he manifested his glory and then what does it says and his disciples believed in him you know it's like we don't know what just happened but something happened that's bigger than we are really aware of right now now let's go to psalm 139 Psalm 139, in uh, my 43 years of pastoring, I've had a few uh, funerals to oversee. And um, it's it's, uh, one of my scriptures that I use quite frequently is is, uh, Ecclesiastes, the third chapter. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to rent, a time to sow. And then he goes on to say, a time of mourning, a time to dance. A time to rejoice. And funerals are kind of both. If they're Christians, it's a time to rejoice and it's a time to mourn. Rejoice for them mourn for ourselves. Okay. Nancy, uh, there wasn't a, a lot of people there. And Nancy was a, a real sweetheart. Nancy was 
singularly, and I shared this at the funeral, singularly, the most supportive, encouraging person in my life for me. She would send me a letter every week with her tithe when she couldn't make it here. And a note saying wonderful, sweet things about me. Now, I don't know if I shared this with all of you, but I heard Ravi Zacharias get introduced one time and he thought, well, I think that was a little more than I, I deserved. I, I don't even, I think I got more degrees with that introduction than I really had. And then he said, it, you know, it c- kind of reminds me of a guy that was speaking up on, uh, speaking at a Wall Street uh, conference and he was introduced as somebody that had made $10 million in one month in investments. And when he got up there, he says, well, I just have some, a few adjustments to make as far as the introduction is concerned. Uh, first of all, uh, it wasn't $10 million. It was $20 million. And secondly, it wasn't on Wall Street. It was on the London Stock Exchange. And thirdly, it wasn't me. It was my brother. Uh, and fourthly, it wasn't money gained. It was money lost. <laughs> Just a few changes. And so, you know, uh, I, when I would read uh, Nancy's letters, I would say, I probably could make a few adjustments to these compliments that she sends me. But she was the sweetest heart. And uh, I will miss her tremendously. And uh, she, uh, just, she's just something special. But I shared... Uh, in, in 43 years, I never shared Psalm 139. Psalm 139, first of all, uh, my first inclination is when I see a psalm, especially like this, my first thought is, who? Who wrote this? Who do you think? David. Somebody, how many didn't? Wanted to say David, but you didn't dare. <laughs> a couple of you. Okay, how many of you would think that's your first thought? Because he wrote a lot of the Psalms, right? He even sounds a little like something David would do. It wasn't David. It was Moses. Wow, Moses read a Psalm. And this is Moses is talking here. And he says, Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Like I said, I read this scripture at somebody that has been suffering for many, many years with cancer in all parts of her body, including her brain. And the last one was the brain, and they wanted to do surgery, and then they decided that it wouldn't do any good. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising, Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. 
Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning, or dwell and dwell in the most utter parts of the sea, even, if, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yes, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the right hand shineth as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee, and when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance. We're stopping with this one. And being, un- well, no, we're not. We're going to do one more after this. Two more. Two, excuse me. Being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. That's another reason we believe that and uh, we don't believe in abortion. If you've had an abortion, God's forgiving. But I'm going to tell you this. It's murder. Well, David murdered somebody. Moses murdered somebody. And they were forgiven. But it's murder. You know. And uh, God had preordained when a baby is conceived in the womb. Thousands of sperms, millions of sperms are fighting to get to that one, to get to that egg. But only one makes it. And you know what that one, you know why that one made it? Because it was ordained of God. That baby was ordained of God. It says, Back up one more time, please. Thy eyes did see my substance being unperfect, imperfect. And in thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. You know God's thoughts, or you know how, how many thoughts he has toward you? Well, let's put it this way. They're more than the information that is on your DNA. If you thought of God every second of your life, if he was on your mind every second, You would have to live to be a thousand years old before you could even match his thoughts toward your being created. He is your creator. Amen. 
Okay. What was the secret in the beginning of the wine? In the beginning is they ran out. So the first step that we have to make with Jesus is that we got nothing. I got nothing. But the interesting thing is what happens next? Then he makes 150 something gallons of great wine. And who gets the credit for that? The master of the the master of the feast. The one that was first responsible for that. So the first thing that happens is that we got nothing. The next thing that happens, we get it all. It's the great exchange. It's my favorite verse that I frequently refer to and never get tired of thinking about. Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one, God said uh, He made His Son to be sin, who knew no sin that you and I might be made the righteousness of God in him. Wow, he must increase while I must decrease. He took my sins while I get his righteousness. He gets what I did while I get what he is. What a, what a gain. When we are out of wine... He's ready to fill us with new wine. Now we all know that that beginning is the beginning is called the new birth. We are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of an incorruptible seed which lives and abides forever. That's the first step of salvation is saying, Lord, I am undone. I am broken. I am, uh, I am full of sin. I, have, uh, I, I am a total loser. And then he gives us. It's, it's like he takes our sin and then we get the credit. Do <laughs> you understand that? You know, but getting the credit. Now, here's something that over my lifetime, I have come to appreciate more and more and more and more. And that is whatever happens in the beginning is a process that happens every single day of our lives. It's a process that happens like this. The outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day. It's kind of like when, when uh, everybody knows that I've had a struggle with some health issues, not, they're not life or death issues, but they're issues, and uh, things are getting better. I've been going back to the gym, working out, getting in, starting to get in shape, you know, uh, drinking better. <laughs> I like to, I don't eat, but it's a kind of a, I drink all my meals. And it's like, uh, it's funny, when I was a young man, I had a drinking problem. And now that I'm an old man, I have a drinking problem. Just a different, diff- different drinking problem, <laughs> you know. And so when people ask me, so how are you doing? Uh, I might say it is well with my soul. 
you know, the guy that wrote the, the hymn about losing his family in a ship, ship accident. And, and so he wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Well, I might say that. My favorite thing to respond is what a combination is what Mary said. Uh, you can read it in uh, Luke, the first chapter, uh, around 60 verse, 60th verse or somewhere in there, where uh, when she goes to be with Elizabeth and Elizabeth's uh, comments uh, to her, uh, now I've seen the mother of my Lord, and, and uh, she says, my soul, and this is not the King James Version, but I like this version because John Michael Talbot uh, wrote a song to this. Uh, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit exalts in God my Savior. For he has looked with mercy on my lowliness. And his name, and actually the verse goes, she says, and my name shall be forever exalted. For the mighty God has done great things for me, and his mercy endures forever. So, and to remember it, you know, it's kind of like, let me sing the song real quick for you. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit exalts in God my Savior, for he has looked with mercy on my lowliness, and my name shall be forever exalted. For the mighty God has done great things for me, and his mercy shall reach from age to age. And holy, holy, holy is his name. You know, our name shall be forever exalted because we have a new name that's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But I like to say, my soul, when somebody says, how are you doing? I, I, I don't care, especially you see the, the non-Christian when they ask me that. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit exalts in God my Savior. But there's a verse in Romans 8 that says, all of creation is groaning for redemption, including our bodies. Because see, although we get the down payment of healing now, our bodies are still aging. We're getting older. We're, you know. So I like to say this. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit exalts in God my Savior. But my body's groaning for redemption. <laughs> but it's getting, it's groaning less nowadays, you know. But I, I shared Psalm 139. Now, what, what's the, uh, back up to this thing. The beginning is to saying we're out, we're empty, we've run out, we're out of wine. And then Jesus makes a sufficient amount of new wine, and then we get the credit. We are the righteousness of God. We are made the righteousness of God in him. 
It's absolute. We are in Christ. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We are acceptable. As in Ephesians where it says we are acceptable. One Greek word for acceptable is eurestos. That's in another, it's other places. Uh, that means pleasing. Eurestos. Acceptable. What's acceptable to the Lord. Pleasing to the Lord. But we are accepted in the beloved. That's another. It's a Greek word karatu. Karatu is, takes, comes from the root word charis. Charis means grace. That's the Greek word, Greek word for grace, charis. And so, but charis, grace means un, uh, undeserved favoritism. Undeserved favoritism. That's what grace means. Charitu is like grace on steroids. That's some, something Rick told, uh, suggested to me. It means, actually, it means uh, highly favored. It doesn't just mean favored. It means highly favored. So we are accepted in Christ. We are highly favored. I am like the bride that the groom is waiting for. You see, I'm dressed in all the bridal garments and I am coming and have been going. You have been going to the wedding in in the sky. Okay, so but. Now, the beginning of that is saying, I'm, I'm empty, and then I get the credit for the new wine. But that's an everyday process, not just a process, it's an everyday experience. You see, because the outward man perishes, but the inward man, the spiritual man, is renewed day by day. It's not just a one-time thing and one time fits the rest of your life. Yes, that's true. Okay. But it's an everyday experience with the Lord. And how does that experience happen? It's like, without you, I'm empty. I am, I am undone. I am finished. That's why in, 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 in uh, James, the fourth chapter, in first Peter, the fifth chapter, when it says, it says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. It also says in First uh, Peter, the first chapter, it says, love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again. Being born again. Not having been born again. Although the, you can talk about having been born again. You know, that's another subject, which is okay. But it's being born again every day. In order to love one another with a pure heart fervently, we have to have this happening in our lives continuously. Even where it says, uh, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. In, in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Do you know what that, that word, but be filled with the Holy Spirit is? Literally, translate, literal translation would keep on being filled. It's like being filled every day. You can be in a constant state of being born again. You can be in a constant state of being filled with the Holy Ghost. And if you are not, you're missing out on the celebration, on the festivities, on the walk with the Lord, the journey with the Lord. That is just the most wonderful thing. 
it far surpasses anything that man has ever tried to find out about celebrating or loving life. It's wonderful. You see, and this is why Jesus starts off with this whole uh, thing about the, the, uh, uh, the wedding is his first uh, miracle. And this is why the disciples said, man, I want that. He starts off with saying, you see what I'm about to do in the next three and a half years? And then through the crucifixion, resurrection, the, you know, whatever that I do in the next few years, this is the illustration of it. Amen? Okay, so how do we start our day? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. When Peter says that, he's talking to Christians. You know, we used to sing the song, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Oh, come on. Try it again. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And He will lift you up higher and higher and He will lift you up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. See, it's humbling yourself and then receiving, making the great, a continuous making the, what does he say there? Resist the devil, he'll flee from Draw nigh to God. God wants you to, why does he use the wedding and the bridegroom uh, as, as the metaphor for the relationship that he wants to have with us. Yes, he is our father. We are his children. It also says in, in, in uh, Isaiah 49, he's our mother. You know, as a matter of fact, almighty God. It's used, uh, first time is with Abraham. Technically, it's used in Job as well. Almighty God. We sing, you know, the song that Amy Grant used to, uh, was most famous for 40 years ago. Remember what song that was? El Shaddai. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Yeah. Donai. Age to age, you know. You know the song that she used to sing? El Shaddai. El Shaddai. What is El Shaddai? That's Hebrew. El Shaddai for what? Almighty God. Do you know what it means, El Shaddai? The root word Shad is in the middle, means mother's breast. That's what it means. It, the, the meaning is God is almighty, the all-sufficient one, literally, El Shaddai, all-sufficient one. He's all-sufficient like mother's breast is for the, a nursing baby. We're the babies and he's the mama. So we, he uses these metaphors. He is a king. We are his, his uh, servants. His, you know, we are part of his subjects. You know, we have all these. But constantly Jesus is referring to him as our bridegroom. To get this sensory uh, perspective of, yes, it's a family. That's good. But it's also a celebration. 
And that's why that is used. And that celebration can happen every day of your life by saying, I'm out. I'm out of the wine. And then he comes with 150 gallons of new wine. And that can happen every day of our lives. But we started off by saying, humbling yourself in the sight of the Lord. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. God wants to know you in every conceivable metaphor way. But one of them is so, when, you know, he uses the bride because if you ever go, ever been at a wedding, there's no such thing as an ugly bride. You know, if you love, if you know Psalm 139, there's no such thing as an ugly person, period. But when a bridegroom's dressed up, they are so beautiful. We are so beautiful to God. We are so radiantly beautiful. And he wants to know that we're like a bride. All, our, all the days of our life are like the march down the aisle. We're coming down the aisle and Jesus is looking back. This is my bride. <laughs> you see, because he wants to know us. He wants to be, de- find delight in us. He wants us to be delighted in him. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants us to be uh, such a part of our life that you can't get any more intimate than a bridegroom and a bride. Hello? That's what John 2 is all about. 